Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 13, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. If you're using the Bibles that we've provided underneath the seats, it's on page 818. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that our family uh, has been working through the Lord of the Rings movies. And as we did, I was reminded again of a theme in Tolkien's story. That's this. Appearances can be deceiving. For instance, who turns out to be the heroes of the story in The Lord of the Rings? The tiny hobbits from the Shire, along with a small band of committed friends. They're the ones whose courage and endurance saved Middle-earth. And I, I just couldn't help at the end of the, the Return of the King to get a little choked up when Aragorn had just been crowned king and, and the hobbits come to bow before him. And Aragorn responds, my friends, you bow to no one. And he led all of the realm to bow the knee to the hobbits. What was small and seemingly insignificant turned out to be just the opposite. In many ways, this is the message of our passage today in the, in the first four of eight parables that Jesus shares in Matthew 13. Things are not always how they seem to be at first glance. The kingdom of God may appear in this world in weakness. The message of the kingdom may often be rejected. But in the end, on the last day, God will demonstrate, friends, that he was always at work in this world. Jesus in these four parables we're going to look at this morning is, is pushing us past mere appearances. He's calling us to use our, our spiritual wits to, to look with spiritual eyes at what he's doing, far more than what our physical eyes can see. He's, he's calling us to patiently wait and persevere and endure in faith and obedience to his word. Let's read together Matthew 13. We're going to read all 43 verses this morning. So here we go. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and when they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who receives, who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and, and, and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. 
He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds or weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a, becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, not only is our passage a little lengthy this morning, it's a bit challenging, I think, to discern the, the structure and flow. So that's why I included the handout in the bulletin this morning so that you could kind of visualize the, the structure of the passage. All eight of these parables in Matthew 13 are about the kingdom of heaven. That's the, the one theme that, that binds them all together. And then, of course, these first four parables that we just read all have similar themes of, of growth and hiddenness and the need for for patience and, and perseverance. Matthew 13, 1 to 43 is this big chunk of text with a lot of moving parts, but really it's, it's two big sections, I think. Verses 1 to 23 and verses 23 to 43. Verses 1 to 23 are about varying responses to the message of the kingdom. That's the parable of the sower. And then the parables in verses 24 to 43 are about the growth of the kingdom. The growth of the kingdom, the responses to the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom. Each section has the telling of the parable at the beginning, right? The explanation of the parable at the end, and then sandwiched in the middle is how Jesus' parables fulfill Old Testament scripture. Do you see that in the diagram? They run parallel in the way that they're, they're laid out. One of the most difficult things about this passage is, frankly, simply knowing how to preach it. Uh, the structure does not lend itself to easy preaching. So you'll notice this morning that we'll not go through the text sequentially as we normally do. But hopefully our approach will make sense and that this morning you might grow in your understanding of God's Word and apply it to your life. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea of the text that I hope will be the main idea of this sermon. Though the kingdom may seem insignificant and many reject it, friends, rest assured that the Lord is working out His purposes through His Word. Though the kingdom of our God may seem small, it may seem insignificant, so that, so that many want nothing to do with it, they reject it. Oh, friends, rest assured this morning that the Lord is work, at work. He's working out His purposes through His Word. Two points this morning. Again, mirroring these two big sections of the text. Number one, varying responses we see in verses 1 to 23. Number two, hidden growth in verses 24 to 43. 
Friends, I pray that today our Lord might encourage us and challenge us with the realities about his kingdom reign through Christ. And I pray that this morning we might faithfully respond to Jesus' word, that we might commit ourselves to endure patiently to the end. Let's look at this first point, varying responses in the first 23 verses. I think the detail in verse 1, that same day, is, is important. Matthew wants us to connect the events of, of chapter 12 to, the, to chapter 13 and what follows. Remember, Jesus has just been accused by the Pharisees of, of casting out a demon in the power of Satan. His own family at the end of chapter 12 was outside the house while he was inside the house teaching, presumably because they had not yet fully embraced him by faith. Large crowds then gathered on the beach of Capernaum to hear Jesus preach. Excitement filled the air. But how many of the crowd were committed disciples? God's kingdom had come in Christ, and yet the majority of people either misunderstood Christ or had flat out rejected him. So what's to follow in chapter 13? Help us make sense of that rejection and that misunderstanding. Before we dig in this morning, I think we need to know what a parable is and how Jesus used them, why he used them. An easy definition for a parable, friends, is this. It's a spiritual analogy, typically in the form of a story. It's a spiritual analogy, typically in the form of a story. Jesus utilized concepts from ordinary daily life to communicate spiritual truth. But here's the thing. The meaning of the parable doesn't just float up right to the surface for easy picking, does it? Parables require spiritual perception for someone to benefit from it, which is exactly why Jesus told his, his disciples that the purpose of the parables were to, was to illuminate truth for some while totally hiding it from others. Look at verse 10. After laying out the parable of the sower, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, why are you teaching like this? Like what gives? Why don't you just lay it out straight for us? And what Jesus says in verses 11 to 17 is stunning. Let's read them again. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are you for your eyes. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Friends, Jesus' response means that parables do not function like my sermon illustrations, right? When I share an illustration, my purpose is always to make the truth clear, like 100% of the time. Now, that may not always happen, right? That might not always happen, but that's the goal. But that's not how the parables were designed to work. The parables were not like spiritual fortune cookies where inside is a truth easily accessible to all who, who were willing to crack open the cookie. No, in fact, Jesus says that the parables were only designed to illuminate the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to you, speaking to his disciples, to you whom it has been given, verse 11. But to them, he says, it has not been given. You see the contrast? You versus them. You to whom it has been given, you who, whose eyes and ears are blessed to see and hear the truth and understand them to whom the secrets of the kingdom have not been given. Friends, clearly Jesus is emphasizing God's sovereignty and salvation. Revealing truth to someone in a way that saves is God's prerogative and his alone. But Jesus is also highlighting the fact that at this point in his ministry, the parables function like an advance of God's judgment. They function like an advance of his judgment in that day. The parables are, are designed to increase the understanding of those who believe while removing the possibility of understanding for those who have dug in their heels in rejection of him. 
in verses 14 to 15, Jesus says that the unbelievers in his day, they're just like the Israel in Isaiah's day. God called Isaiah, as Jasmina read this morning, to preach a message to Israel that caused further rejection. It was his judgment upon his wayward people. This same pattern is filled in the more climactic way in Jesus' day because his people, the people of Israel in his day, rejected the Messiah himself, the very Son of God. The parables affected God's judgment on those who had no interest in listening because the parables further hid the truth from their eyes. For those whose hearts were hostile to Jesus, it's like the parables poured concrete into their already hard hearts. Friends, if you're one of those like these in Jesus' day who has just repeatedly rejected the gospel as it's been preached to you, whether it's from the pulpit every week or whether it's by your parents at home or wherever, this Isaiah passage that Jesus quotes ought to give you great pause. You do not want to be identified as one whose seeing does not see and hearing does not hear. You ought to pray, friend, that God might grant you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that loves him and spiritual understanding to embrace Jesus for whom he really is. Friends, I know this, this is a hard truth to grapple with. But I, I think in light of Jesus' words here, we should not be focusing so much on, on God's withholding of, of his grace to some, but the granting of his grace to any. What a merciful God we have. Psalm 78, 2, quoted by Matthew in verse 34, functions really the same way. Look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Our call to worship this morning. Psalm 78 re reviews the rebellious, hard-hearted history of Israel until the time of David. And Matthew says, Asaph, the author of Psalm 78, was prophesying about Jesus' generation whose rebellion was heightened because they rejected their king. Old Israel, their unbelief was a pattern fulfilled by current Israel in Jesus' day. Even though the son of David had arrived, they didn't see him. Both Old Testament passages in Matthew 13, friends, are, are quoted to emphasize the purpose of the parables. They reveal the kingdom to those with open hearts. They conceal it to those whose hearts are closed off from Jesus. Okay. Necessary intro material done. Now let's dig into the parables themselves. First up is the parable of the sower. I'm good to call it the parable of the sower. That's what Jesus called it. But it's really not about the sower, is it? Nor is it about the seed so much. The focus is on the soil. Four different types of dirt represent four different types of hearts, four different responses to him. I think what Jesus is doing here is bringing together the three groups we've been learning about in Matthew's gospel. The hardened, intractable religious leaders, they're the first soil. The excited yet uncommitted crowds, they're the second and third soils. Those who look like they're following Jesus, but they're really not. And the disciples who believed Jesus and followed him by faith for real, they're the fourth soil. The parable is not talking, friends, about four different types of Christians, but three different types of non-Christians and one type of Christian, because there is only one type of Christian, one who bears the fruit of faith and repentance and obedience in response to the gospel. Friends, I think Jesus wants, to, wants us to do two things with this parable of the sower. First, he wants to give us tools to understand why it is that some people who look like Christians from the beginning or at the beginning eventually fall away from Christ. He doesn't want us to be surprised or, or confused or, or deconstruct our faith because someone whom we respected or love proved themselves to be a false professor or an imposter. He's given us tools in our tool belts to understand such things spiritually. The second thing Jesus wants us to do with this parable is to check our hearts. He wants us to check our hearts. What type of soil are we? Are we hard? Are we shallow? Are we thorny? Or are we fertile? Let's look at this first type of response, the intractable response. Look at verse 3. 
And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Corresponding to verse 3 or verses 18 to 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So friends, here's the image. The farmer is planting his field. He's walking with the, the bag of seed over, trapped over his shoulder. He's sowing the, fee, the seed liberally in his field. He simply takes the seed out of his bag as he walks and he casts it across the row in which he's working. So it's not surprising that some seed fell on hard ground and was, and was snatched up immediately by dive-bombing birds. That's what happens, right, in a farm. Likewise, you shouldn't catch us off, off guard, friends, that every time the gospel is preached, spiritual warfare is happening. Our enemy is at, is at work to blind eyes and dull hearts and make the message of the gospel seem silly or antiquated or scandalous. But lest you think Jesus is simply letting those with these type of immovable hearts off the hook because Satan was at work, look, notice the, the type of ground that he calls them. He says that the seed lands on the path. And I think the implication there is it's a stone path or a hard packed, you know, dirt path is what he's trying to get across. The reason that Satan could so easily influence the intractable is because their hearts were already hard. These are the ones who listen to the preaching of the word and think, can you believe this guy? He thinks the Bible is actually true. Oh, man, this is so boring. When are we going to go home and watch football? See what I did there? I just illustrated two different types of strategies of Satan to snatch the word off a hard heart. Hostility and inattention. Hostility and boredom. The hard-hearted aren't just the hostile, but the bored. Not just those with animosity toward Christ, but those with an overwhelming apathy toward him. Oh, friend, don't, do not let the word of God go in one ear and out the other. Here's the good news. The good news is that even if this morning you have a hard and an impenetrable heart, it does not have to stay that way. These are not fixed categories of those who receive or listen to the word. God is in the business of turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And if you have any fear of the Lord in your soul, friend, ask the Lord to give you this type of heart. Ask the Lord to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. Ask him to show you the beauty of Christ if Christ is really beautiful. Ask him to impress upon you the truthfulness of the word of God if the word of God is really true. And he is really beautiful, and it is really true. I think the Lord will answer that prayer if you pray it. Friend, if at any time you want to respond to the invitation of Christ and the gospel, by all means do it. It's the very evidence that God has given you a new soft heart that wants to follow Christ and obey him. Brothers and sisters, we ought not to be discouraged when in evangelizing the intractable, the immovable. The sower did not stop sowing just because some seed fell along the path and became bird food. He didn't stop sowing. He kept sowing. He kept watering. He kept plowing so that some seed might turn out to bear fruit. Don't be discouraged. You never know when the intractable might become all of a sudden in the miracle of the new birth, tractable right? You never know when the hard-hearted might in the miracle of grace become soft. Keep sharing the good news and pray for the Lord to work. Number two, the superficial. The superficial, look at verse five. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Verses 20 to 21 correspond. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, for in, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
Friends, what is remarkable about the rocky soil and the thorny soil to follow is that each of them appear to be good soil. When the farmer casts his seed upon the rocky soil, he cannot see that the soil doesn't have depth because of underlying rock. He just sees what looks like good dirt right on top of the rock. Likewise with the thorns. It's only after the wheat or, or barley has begun to grow that upspring the thorns, the thorny weeds alongside the crop that ev eventually choke it out. Jesus again wants us to see that appearances are not everything. Especially when it comes to following him by faith. Friends, Jesus is not talking about good dirt here that somehow becomes bad. He's talking about bad dirt that looks like it's good dirt, but that eventually proves itself to be bad dirt indeed. Friends, this is why at Redeeming Grace Church, we are not out to get decisions in our services or at our youth events or at our discipleship activities. Do we want people to follow Jesus by faith and decide that? Absolutely. Do we want our kids and teens to, to give their lives to Christ and repentance and faith? 100%. But friends, because of the parable of the soils, we must not try to force nor manipulate immediate decisions when we know how deceitful the human heart is and how, um, how misleading immediate appearances can be. It takes time to discern what is going on. The genuineness of people's conversions is not seen over weeks or months, or even years. The genuineness of true conversion is seen over a lifetime. A new professing convert can fall away from Christ within weeks of his or her baptism. And so can a pastor or elder who's been ministering the gospel for years. It simply takes the filter of time and life to prove who people really are. In this case, the, the seed that fell on soil with rock underneath ended up withering under the heat of the sun, the plant did. There's, there was no genuine root of the new birth. There was no transforming work of the Spirit underneath, right? No true commitment to Christ by faith. And so when the scorching heat of opposition or affliction beats down on this person, he or she just immediately falls away. Like, why endure persecution for something you really don't believe in, right? It makes sense. Right? Why joyfully endure suffering when you really don't believe deep down in a good and sovereign and wise God? There's some spiritual logic here, isn't there? What's illuminating about this shallow response is that verse 20 says the person receives the word immediately with joy. In other words, the person's reaction to the word looks just the way you would want it to look. They were glad about what they were learning. They were on fire for God. At least it seemed that way. You'd see them in the service with their, with their hands raised. They were, they were eager and energetic and pumped about Christ, but they had no depth, no roots, no true spiritual vitality. That is scary, isn't it? Friends, if you ever wonder why our services at Redeemed Grace Church are free of emotionally charged appeals and dimmed lights and supercharged music, look no further than the parable of the rocky ground. Really, it is spiritually dangerous and pastorally unwise to attempt to manipulate a feeling or an emotion that people identify with an experience with God. As if, that's what true Christianity is. It's me getting a tingly sensation in a service. That's what it means to experience the Spirit. No, friends. True Christianity isn't grounded in feelings or experiences or endorphin-saturated worship, but in the mundane. In the day-after-day -day slog of the Christian life. If you try to live from spiritual high to spiritual high, like summer camp Christianity, you are in, are in danger of finding yourself like the person that Jesus describes. Friend, aim your life toward everyday faithfulness. Walk with Christ daily. Dig the, the, the roots of your faith deep into the soil through good theology and, and Bible study and the fellowship of, of brothers and sisters in the church to spur you on 
to love and good deeds. So that when the sun of suffering comes, and it will for all of us, the sun of affliction, the sun of persecution will beat down. When that comes, if you've dug your roots deep, that sun will not wither you. It will cause you to grow. Number three, the double-minded. The double-minded. If persecution is what exposed the false professor in the rocky ground, it was prosperity in the case of the thorns. Let's read verse seven. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Corresponding to verse seven is verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The thorny professing Christian typically lasts a bit longer than the shallow, rocky soil. In this case, the crop grows up just like the fruitful crop. But as it, it turns out, there are competitors in the environment of growth. Their heart is not totally given over to the Lord. Eventually, either the cares of this world or the pleasures of the world cause them to turn away. They're double-minded. Friends, I think the cares of the world that Jesus mentions are just the ordinary things of life. Jobs, making money, family obligations, raising kids, going on vacations, hobbies, sports, DIY projects around the house, honey-do list. No, I'm just kidding. Not bad things, not bad things, but good things that distract. Good things that, that bend our hearts away from full-hearted allegiance to Christ, wholehearted engagement with His people. Pretty soon we start making excuses about why our church attendance and our body life participation has grown less and less. I just need more family time. I just need more relaxation in, in my stressful life. We begin to excuse why we never Spend time in the Lord with prayer, in prayer. Well, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. You, you, you'd understand if you saw my schedule. And before you know it, our hearts have drifted away from the Lord. The cares of this world have, have choked out any semblance of spiritual vitality. And of course, the thorns of the world that choke out faith could also be the love of money, like Jesus mentions, the desire to pursue wealth, to have it all, or it could be otherworldly pleasures, romance and sex, power, success, fame, and so on. Friends, it strikes me that it's not hard at all. It is not hard at all to get people to respond to the gospel with a Jesus and message. But when you press them that it's not Jesus and, but Jesus or, well, that thins out the crowd real quick. Jesus or sexual freedom. Jesus or dating who I want to date. Jesus or a thirst for riches. Jesus or my own glory. Well, friends, don't, let's not be duped by any false gospel that says that it's Jesus and, that you can have Jesus and be just fine with your sin. No, to have Jesus is to be at war with your sin. To have Jesus is a desire to forsake everything and to follow him. Number four, finally some good news. There's the fruitful response. There's a final type of soil that Jesus mentions, and this is the response of true faith and true repentance that perseveres. Look at verse eight. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 30 corresponds. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Oh, friends, let's praise God. <laughs> praise God that there is a type of soil of the heart that bears fruit. Of course, it is made this way by grace. It is persevering attachment to Jesus Christ. This is the person who hears the word of the Lord and he or she understands it. Like in the full Isaiah 6 understanding of the heart way, this person embraces the word of Christ as it's preached week in and week out. They hear it and they want to obey it, right? This is not a perfect person. This is an obedient person. 
This is the one whose, whose life has been transformed by the spirits, whose roots are deep, whose spiritual life just cannot be choked out by competing gods. Friends, what you and I need is not a 4th of July firework Christianity that explodes with vivid and impressive colors but fizzles out quickly. We need a bonfire Christianity where the logs of the word and the kindling of prayer and the fellowship of those who sit around the fire keep it going. I don't know if that analogy made sense, but that's what I threw in there last night. We need a bonfire Christianity. Brothers and sisters, we must persevere. We must persevere. You say, John, how can I be assured that I am this good, fruitful soil? Should I just kind of look back? Should I just look back at my profession of faith and my baptism? Well, that's not all bad. I'm not saying that's all bad. In fact, I think by remembering how you began, it can serve as kind of a prod or a, a catalyst for your spiritual life. But friends, ultimately, you should not bank on what you professed once upon a time, but rather take a, a, a deep look, a good look at what or whom has your heart right now. Right now. And not just like a snapshot of your life, but like the film reel of your life. Who or what has your heart? Who or what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Are you at war with your sin? Is, is your life marked by the regular rhythms of repentance and faith? Do you love God's people in the church? Do you want to help others follow Jesus? Our oh, friends, if the answer to these questions is yes, then take heart. You more than likely have fruitful soil. He said, John, are you saying, are you, are you saying that we can't be confident of our salvation? No. No, I am saying you can be absolutely confident and assured that you are Christ. Rather, I think Jesus' warning here, Jesus' parable is kind of like the Jude type of instruction. Jude 21, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads you to eternal life. Persevere in the faith, saints, knowing at the end of Jude, it is God who preserves you. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling eternally, be power and dominion and glory. Persevere. God is preserving you. He will hold you fast. Ultimately, Jesus leaves this parable open-ended, doesn't he? He leaves the application to us. He leaves it to us. So friend, what type of soil are you? Number two, hidden growth. Hidden growth. In verses 24 to 43, Jesus moves on to tell us three more parables. And I think the fact that the explanation for the parable of the weeds, it comes at the end after the parables of the mustard seed and leaven, means that we're to, we're to read these together. We're to read these together. They have a common theme. And I think the common theme is the growth of the kingdom. Just like the parable of the soils, where the appearance of those responding to the word is not the indicator of true reality, so it is with the kingdom itself. In verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 43, Jesus gives us another agricultural parable. And it too has to do with our patiently enduring to the end. And I've kind of named this subpoint of this parable uh, of, of the tares, of the, of the weeds, don't despair what may look bleak. Let's start reading in verse 24 again. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds on the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to them, Then do you want us to go gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the weed into my barn. Scholars tell us that the, the weed that Jesus is referring to here is the darnel, a type of weed that, that grows up with the wheat and looks exactly like the wheat until the wheat blossoms, until it, it, it blossoms the head on the wheat. Only then, when the grain heads appear, that the servants are like, whoa, wait a second, we've got a bunch of false weed. We've got a bunch of, uh, uh, of non-wheat in the field. 
corresponding to these verses we just read are verses 36 to 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. What's Jesus doing with this parable? Friends, I think what He's doing is He's reshaping His disciples' understanding of the nature of the kingdom. The Jews expected God's kingdom to arrive in apocalyptic power. And their expectation is that when the Messiah King arrived, it would be that great day of physical salvation and vindication and restoration for the people of God. And in first century Israel, what did that mean? It meant Israel subjugating Rome, not vice versa. It meant the Messiah's physical reign on the earth and the transformation of the world into a place of peace and prosperity. But astonishingly, when Jesus comes, the enemies of the kingdom were not removed from the scene, were they? They remained. In fact, alongside those who love God's reign through Christ are those who hate God's reign through Christ. You can't always tell the difference immediately between the two, can you? Sometimes the one looks like the other. So I think in part what Jesus is communicating in this parable is be patient, friends. Just hold on. Wait for the final judgment to show which is which and who is who. Christianity, friends, is largely about patience, isn't it? If you want a microwave, a microwave faith and immediate results, that is not biblical Christianity. Christianity is about waiting. It's about patience. It's about endurance. The mystery of Christ's kingdom is that an interval exists between the kingdom's inauguration and its final consummation. There's an interval. The day of judgment will arrive in the future, but it's not now. It's as the farmers, or excuse me, as the servants of the farmer wanted. Did you notice that? They wanted the, what did they want the farmer to do? Hey, can we just go rip out the Darnell? Let's just get it out of the field. And, and the farmer's wise, and he said, no, if you do that, you'll rip out the true wheat too. You'll rip all the roots out at once. So let it remain until the harvest. So both wheat and weed exist together until the final day of judgment. Friends, I'm sure all of us in this room have wondered about the problem of evil in this world. Why doesn't an all-powerful God remove evil and evildoers on the spot? If he really can bring true justice in this world, why hasn't God done it yet? Why is sex trafficking allowed to prosper? Why are abortion doctors allowed to live in God's world? Why do dirty politicians always seem to have the upper hand? Why does God let the LGBTQ plus 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 agenda flourish in advance at all? Why doesn't he just bring the hammer down like now? Friends, I don't think your desire for justice in these areas is wrong. But your understanding of God's timing is. Because the clear witness of this parable is that one of the reasons for the delay of God's justice is the full and gathering of his harvest. God delays his judgment so that the purposes of God and redemption might reach full maturity. If God were to judge prematurely, his purpose to save would collapse. Millions of his elect who have yet to repent and believe would be lost. God's patience in judgment is for the purpose of His grace. God's patience in judgment is for the purpose of His grace. You know, Peter in his second letter dealt with this very issue of impatience about the end of all things, the timing of the second coming. Listen to what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Friends, as, as much as we itch for God's justice, let's praise God for His merciful delay of it. 
As much as we yearn for the full realization of God's kingdom and Christ's second coming, praise God for what Jesus accomplished in his first coming. Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to save. He lived a life of perfect trust and obedience that we should have lived but didn't. He died on the cross in our place to absorb God's just wrath for our sins so that we wouldn't have to face that wrath at his second coming. And he rose triumphantly from the grave to grant eternal life to all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Friends, the delay and the establishing of God's consummated kingdom is so that sinners might repent and trust in Christ to save them. But this parable assures us that the final judgment is indeed coming. It's coming. The great and terrible day of God's reckoning with evildoers is coming. Hell is real and it's eternal. God will deal with every wrong that has not been accounted for by the cross of Christ. And so he will vindicate the righteous. Our great day of salvation is coming too. Just as, as assuredly, friends, as the tide of the oceans come in, so that great day will arrive. And when it does, the righteous, Jesus said, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. We will be full participants in the victory of the Son of Man and sharers in the very glory of God. And we will forever praise the riches of the mercy of the Father who chose us and the Son who bought us and the Spirit who sealed us for that unending day. Beloved, don't despair what may look bleak. Patiently endure to the end. And then secondly, don't despise what may look small. Let's look at these last two parables quickly. Look at verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. It's about 50 pounds, actually, until it was all leavened. Friends, what would have been remarkable to Jesus' original hearers was not that the kingdom would be compared to a large tree or to a huge banquet feast of bread. They expected God's kingdom to be huge, right? They believed the words of Ezekiel and Daniel, the prophets who said that, that the nations would find shade in the tree of Israel like the birds of the air. That's the image here in the parable. They believed that God's kingdom would spread from shore to shore to the ends of the earth. What utterly shocked them and befuddled them is that something so great would appear so small. Something so significant could look so piddly. And that's the point of these parables. A mustard seed was so small, friend, that it amounted to nothing and yet from it comes a huge tree. Even, even a tiny amount of leaven causes yeast to rise and, and a great amount of bread. So it is with Christ's kingdom. What looks obscure and weak and insignificant turns out to be just the opposite. Under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, there is a hidden growth that will be revealed on the last day. Friends, this parable is true on so many levels. So many levels. I love this parable. I wish we had more time with it. That's my fault, not yours. But I wish we had more time with it. Jesus teaching a ragtag assortment of, of 12 disciples didn't look like much. But that number would grow to 3,000 by Pentecost. The gospel would advance from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then to the other most parts of the earth, just like Jesus commanded of his disciples so that today there is no uninhabited continent where Jesus Christ is not worshipped. Millions around the world on this Lord's Day praise the fame of King Jesus. And we when we reach glory and all the faith family of Abraham is gathered in, it will be a countless host, as many as the sands of the shore and the stars of the sky. Yet friends, even... The millions within Christ's kingdom today, we live in relative obscurity in the, in the esteem of the world. The kingdom of God is not prized by the kingdom of man. 
Increasingly in our culture, to be a Christian is, is considered out of step, weird, even a threat to the common good. What's that all about? The average person who would walk into one of our Sunday gatherings wouldn't think that what happens here has any real significance. They wouldn't think that what goes on at 3673 South Bullard week in and week out is impressive or impactful or cool. But friends, what they don't realize, what they don't realize is that each Sunday we gather, we come as the embassy of the kingdom of Christ Jesus, who one day will visibly demonstrate his present rule over the cosmos. We are the people of the King of Kings. We're the people of the Lord of Lords, who has promised to build his church so that the gates of hell cannot stand against it. The message we preach Every Sunday is the very power and wisdom of God to save. I think Jesus means for us to see that what starts in weakness, friends, will finish in awesome might. What begins in obscurity will end in unending glory. Friends, when it, when it comes to Christ's work in the gospel, you cannot judge a book by its cover. So often his work isn't demonstrated by what your eyes can see, but know that he's at work nonetheless. This should encourage us in our evangelism, in our discipleship, no matter what the immediate results are. Well, friends, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't judge a situation only by what your eyes can see. To do so is worldly. That's what unbelievers do. That's what those without Jesus do. Friends, we need to be careful that we do not fall into the satanic trap of judging the importance of things by the present and material results that we can see. We must not weigh our success by the metrics of this world, whether it's numbers or money or status or whatever. So often as a pastor, I'm tempted by this allure, by this worldly instinct, but it is deadly Rather, we must fix our eyes on our king who is working out all his kingdom purposes in this world steadily, slowly, even secretly, but is at work nonetheless. Beloved, may God give us the necessary grace to faithfully respond to his word and patiently endure to the end.